Hello, and welcome to Asbury Methodist Church's podcast. My name is Forrest Divini. I am the lead pastor at Asbury. We hope that this podcast will enrich your walk with Christ, increase your knowledge of the Bible, and I hope that it will also be somewhat entertaining for you as we go along. Uh, Now, we are in Holy Week, and we are, if you're going along with our Bible reading plan, which is uh, nine days through the Gospel of Mark. It's called the Crucified King on version. if you want to just use the app. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, um, so we are in Mark. <coughs> <coughs> My goodness, excuse me. That time of year. Um, Now, Mark's whole gospel is quite short, so we're reading a couple of chapters a day here to get through it in nine days, but I'm going to focus on Mark's treatment of the last few days of Jesus' life. And there are a few things to, to point out. As we come up into Holy Week. As we prepare to celebrate Easter. <clears throat> and I promise I will stop trying to clear my throat any minute now. Um, so beginning in Mark chapter 13. There's this great little line. Um, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, and these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is an apocalyptic text in terms of it fits that genre of literature. But many people will 
will try and interpret this as Jesus warning his disciples about the end times. And that's really not what it is. Um, you know, he has the warning about the temple, right? The, the temple is going to be torn down. And he's right. The temple is going to be torn down, actually, in AD 70. The Romans are going to tear down the temple. And in fact, between Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in AD 70, there will be many people who come in his name saying that they are the Messiah. Right? Many will come... Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. There will, there will be many false messiahs who come along and lead people in rebellion against Rome. And that will create wars, war after war after war. And Jesus is saying this whole spiel is that, look, these, these things that are happening here, these false messiahs and the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, they're just the beginning. That doesn't mean that the end is near. Because your and he says, then your job is to take my gospel and spread it to the whole world and to endure the suffering and persecution that will come along with that. So it's not a message about the end times. It's an encouragement to persevere through difficulty and hardship. And then in verse 14, he says this. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the, the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. <clears throat> so, let's talk about this for a minute. The abomination of desolation is a reference to something which, well, there's an allusion to the book of Daniel, but, but more importantly for Jesus and for his disciples, it's, a, it's an allusion to <clears throat> the Maccabees. Now, because we don't typically read the Apocrypha anymore, we don't always get this reference. The abomination of desolation happens when... 
the Israelites are under the rule of the Syrian Empire, who are essentially, um, it, it's, y'all, I'm so sorry for all this noise. Essentially what happens is one of one of the sort of splinter empires after Alexander the Great dies, his empire divides is divided amongst his generals, and so you have the Seleucid Empire ruling Syria. One of the emperors of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, marches into the temple in Jerusalem and sets up an idol to a pagan god in the middle of the temple, and this is the abomination of desolation. And what Jesus is saying, he's alluding to that and saying it's going to happen again. Pagans will set up their idol in the temple. And this does actually happen. Roman soldiers will barge into the temple, the temple and set up a, 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 the eagle of Rome in the middle of the temple. It's one of the things that kicks off one of the rebellions. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is warning them about one of the wars that is going to take place between Jewish rebels and Roman soldiers. And they're saying, look, when this happens, get out of town. Don't participate. Don't, don't pick sides. Just run. And that's what this whole section is about. It's about the war that will take place between Jews and Romans. The, Jews, the Jewish people will rise up in rebellion. They will lose. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. People will be slaughtered by the thousands. It's horrific. And Jesus is telling, and, and Jesus has been warning people all along, all throughout his ministry, he's been telling people, look, do not use violence against Rome. It won't work. It will only cause you more trouble and more pain and more death. And now he's telling his disciples, look, they are on the path to destruction because they cannot conceive of a way to avoid violence with Rome. So when that happens, your job is to get out of town, to go flee to safety. To avoid the violence. And the illusion when he talks about the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is an allusion to Daniel chapter, I want to say it's chapter 7, but it could be chapter 9. It's one of those two. People misinterpret this all the time because they don't recognize the allusion to Daniel. This is not an image of Jesus returning. It is not. Anyone who says that does not know their Old Testament well enough. This is a reference to Daniel. And in, in, the, in Daniel, you have, you have the image of the Son of Man. And it uses the language of coming in clouds with great power and glory. But it is a, a picture of the Son of Man ascending, not descending, but ascending to God on his throne in heaven. And the Son of Man comes in, in clouds with great power and glory to stand before the throne of God. He is referencing his ascension. So what he's saying is after all this, then people will see 
the truth that you all are going to see now. So let's move on a little bit. Mark moves, Mark moves really quickly through the arrest of Jesus, um, through his trial, through his crucifixion. And we've already kind of covered this in John. And obviously I'm going to talk about it some on Sunday, so I don't want to give too much away. But... And this, by the way, is probably just going to be a really short podcast. Because I don't want to give too much away. But I do want to give you some things to think about. The, the end of the Gospel of Mark is really abrupt, right? I mean, you've got two possible endings. You have the shorter ending, and you have the longer ending. The shorter ending starts at 16, verse 8. The longer ending continues on and has um, some more detail on Jesus appearing to people, giving the Great Commission, and... Um, and saying things like, um, and these signs will, will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. This is, um, this is one of those passages in Scripture that has inspired some weird stuff, like the, the, um, the weird sort of fundamentalist Pentecostal movements where they handled venomous snakes and used that as like proof of their holiness. Um, please don't do that, by the way. It's a really weird piece, and it doesn't quite fit with the rest of Mark. And so there, there's some parts that are fine, right? Um But then there's that little bit about the snakes, and that's weird, and it doesn't quite fit. And, and, and so you wonder what happened. So part of what, what likely happened is that very likely the original gospel probably did not end with verse 8, although it could have. Mark does like to sort of end things abruptly and do things in a strange way. Um... I'm kind of actually inclined to believe that most of this longer ending of Mark is probably original. I don't really know what to make of the bit about snakes, though. About picking up servants with their hands and drinking any deadly poison and being fine. <clears throat> it's not just that that doesn't fit with Mark. It doesn't really fit with, with any of the Gospels or with the rest of the New Testament or the rest of the Bible. Um... You know that there's, so it, it it's hard I think to make sense of that that bit. Um, I mean the rest of it's fine, right? Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Um, even most of the signs that accompany those who believe, right? In my name, they'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll lay their hands on the sick and they recover. Do you know? I mean, these are, 
Let's set aside for a moment the bit about picking up serpents and drinking poison and not getting hurt by it. That part's weird, and, and I don't think that we actually have any real reason to buy into it. Uh, I'm, it's, it's one of those things I, I wonder if that's like a later edition or if someone wrote that in, or maybe just Mark was in a weird mood when he wrote it. Um, but the rest of it not only fits with the other Gospels, it fits with the rest of the New Testament. Um, these are actually things that believers are supposed to be doing. Casting out demons. Now, that's one that could get me in a lot of trouble. Because when we start, one, when we start talking about demons, people get weird. Um, and, and just so you're all, I, I have never cast out a demon. I've not done that. Um, and in fact, for a long time, I, I didn't really think about that kind of stuff very much. And I kind of dismissed it because the Bible doesn't really, I mean, outside of, outside of the gospels, right? There's not much mentioned in Paul's letters of demons or anything like that. Jesus casts out quite a few demons. Um, and you know, when I was coming of age and growing up, even there was, there was kind of a, A popular idea among the church that maybe a lot of these demons that were getting cast out were things like mental illness and sickness that they just didn't understand and so they called them demons um, and I, I think that there may be a couple of spots where that is what's happening but I also think far more likely is there really are demons and, and Jesus really did cast them out and he was going throughout Israel and casting the demons out of the people There is a, a firm sense in the New Testament that there are non-human entities which exist in the cosmos and that some of them are good, which we call angels, and some of them are evil and these get called demons. And, and actually, the Apostle Paul is very convinced that um, that the, the gods that the pagans worship are actually demons. They are not the gods that people think they are. They've been tricked into thinking that these are gods, but they're demons. So Paul will associate every idol with a demon. And I think we can actually still do that today because we still have our idols. Um, we just don't think of them as gods, right? Our idols are, you know, there's, there's the big three, money, sex, and power. Uh, but you can break those down into all kinds of other things, right? Career, job, um, materialism, consumerism. Sex is a, a very popular idol for obvious reasons. Um, so these idols are still there. I think that means that those demons are still active. Um and I was always very uncomfortable with the idea of talking about demons and, and casting them out until I had a professor in seminary who legitimately one of the, the smartest, wisest, most deeply rational and logical people I have ever spoken to who told us that he had in fact cast out two demons. He performed two exorcisms. <clears throat> Actually, on campus with students at the school, uh, undergrads, not not seminary students, and um, 
he wouldn't tell us any details. The, the experiences had shaken him so much. They had been so deeply disturbing. He would not talk about them except to say that they had happened. Um, that that kind of shook me. So uh, I've never performed an exorcism. I'm not totally sure that I want to after hearing that from him. Um, but it does seem that we have to take that seriously. Uh, that there are non-human forces at work in the world which are evil in nature. Uh, speaking in, in new tongues. Now, I I have been around people who speak in tongues in the sense of what they're, they, they, they sound, it sounds like they're saying gibberish, right? Some people will call it the language of angels or the language of heaven. Um, or they'll reference the, the Paul's description of, you know, groaning, groaning too deeply for words. And so the Spirit supplies you with words. Um, and this is best understood as a prayer language. It's between you and God and and in the right environment, um, it can be a beautiful thing to hear. Uh, one of the most beautiful spiritual experiences I've been in was it being part of a worship service where people began to sing in tongues. That was lovely. And I will tell you right now, there is a clear and immediately noticeable difference between people who are genuinely being moved by the Spirit into praying and singing in tongues and people who are um, essentially forcing it, doing it themselves because they think that's what it's supposed to do. If you've ever been in a room, a worship service or something where people begin to speak in tongues or pray in tongues out loud and it made you really uncomfortable and you felt really weird, um, they were faking it. Because let me tell you, the real thing when it happens, this, this sense of peace washes over you as you hear it. It's very different. Very, very different. Um, and also, I think, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know if less common is the right word, but it's certainly less common to hear it out loud and in public. Most people who genuinely have the gift of tongues, when they, when they pray in tongues, will be doing that privately. But there is also the gift of literally being given the ability to speak a new language which you do not know. Now, I've not encountered this personally, but I know people who have, and I've heard the stories. And so this is a gift of the Spirit that really does happen. Um, now, let's talk about laying hands on the sick and having them recover. This is a real thing. A real thing that we need to reclaim. Not, and, and this is an important distinction. It's not about, um, it's not like a name it and claim it kind of thing where you think if you just pray hard enough, if you just have good enough faith, God will heal everything. Nope, doesn't work like that. But we can pray for healing and we can expect that God will heal. Um, the best way I've ever heard it explained was that was by um, Nikki Gumble, who is the the pastor at uh, Holy Trinity Brompton Anglican Church in London, and he's also the, the leader of Alpha, which is a wonderful program. If you've not, if you're not familiar with it, you should look it up. But he says, you know, we've 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 just noticed that um, when we pray for healing, more people are healed, and when we don't pray for healing, the healing doesn't seem to be happening as much. So we pray for healing, and we have healing prayer services, and we invite people to come and have whatever they need healing for. We pray over them. Um, and we accept that sometimes God does not heal, but just as we don't take credit when healing happens, we don't take the blame when it doesn't happen. Um, 
And I, I just, I love that mindset of, you know, we just, we, you know, we, we notice that when we pray for healing, more people are healed. For whatever reason, God sees fit to heal people in response to prayer. He doesn't do it all the time. Not every prayer is met with a, with a resounding yes. But we are called to lay our hands on the sick and pray for healing and to expect that at least some of them will have a miraculous recovery when we do that. And that when it doesn't happen, God must have something else in mind. As we come into Holy Week, as we prepare to celebrate Good Friday and Easter, I want you to reflect on on how seriously you take stuff like this in the Bible. Because I find a lot of American Christians really don't take it very seriously. They're, not because they don't believe in Jesus, but because we have a tendency, I think, to over-rationalize our faith and to minimize the, the supernatural aspects of it and the weird parts of it, because supernatural stuff is weird. And so we push aside the stuff about demons and the stuff about speaking in tongues and, and the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. All the gifts of the Spirit we like to focus on are the stuff that just feel like an, like an unusual talent we have for something. Not the miraculous, obviously supernatural things that enable us to really do incredible ministry. And here's the thing. We live in a post-Christian society. If we want people to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, most people will not be convinced by logical argument, by exposition from the scriptures, or any of that. Most of the time, what you need in order to convince someone that Jesus is real is something like the resurrection. The resurrection was the ultimate proof that Jesus was who he says he was. He now sends the Holy Spirit into each one of us. And we then experience things that are miraculous and that are unexplainable. We are called to facilitate those kinds of encounters with non-believers. To facilitate the kind of experiences where someone will encounter God doing something that cannot be explained if God does not exist. That's how you win people for the gospel these days. That's how Mark concludes his gospel. And that is one, it's not the only thing the resurrection is about, but it is one part of it. God is at work. And the way that God works is weird and unexplainable and sometimes deeply um, discomforting. <clears throat> that just means that we, if we want to be part of a of, of vital, growing ministry that reaches the unchurched, are going to have to get comfortable with discomfort. So I just invite you to reflect on that as we come closer to Easter Sunday. That's all for this week, folks. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.